And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This ends the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he bless it to our hearts today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come into your presence today, we're so thankful for the opportunity to come and an opportunity that has been afforded by you. We come to serve and worship you today. And how we pray that you would strengthen our hearts. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We celebrate it today. And we join together, Father, when we mention those in prayer who are unable to be here for various reasons. And Father, we do want to pray for those who are away, who may be sick. We pray for our dear brothers and sisters who are quarantining. We pray, Father, that a way may be made that they can return to us soon, however that may be. Please act in such a way to bring them back here soon. We especially pray for our sister Carlene today. We pray that you would please strengthen her body, strengthen her soul. We lift up her grandson Will today to you, Father, and just ask that you would please do a great work in Will's heart. Please protect him and please keep him. We pray today for our dear brother Vody Balcom and how we ask, Father, for your healing mercy. We, we thank you for the outpouring of of love and support as you have prompted your people to meet his medical needs. And we do pray for he and his family, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would raise Vody up to good health soon. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to join together and partner with others in gospel endeavors in faraway places and how we pray for our missionaries today. We pray that you would bless them and strengthen their hearts and provide everything they need. And we pray, uh, Father, for uh, hearts open to the gospel and for a great harvest where they are serving. We especially want to lift up our uh, two Portuguese pastors today down in Brazil, how we pray for your blessing upon them. We, we thank you for being able to, to serve them and how we ask, Lord, that you would please strengthen them for the work that you have them involved in. Again, Father, we pray for your blessing on your word today. Please open our eyes that we might see our Lord Jesus high and lifted up. Now join with me in this prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen in all my years of being a christian one thing that is constant that never changes is the resistance to the claims of the exclusivity of Christ. 
And I will predict for you that I think that resistance will increase more and more as days pass on. We saw this past week where on the uh, House of Representatives, on the floor of Congress, one particular congressman from Florida, Greg Stubbe, uh, was quoting from Pastor Tony Evans in light of the debate on the floor of Congress surrounding the Equality Act. And quoting Tony Evans, uh, Congressman Stubbe said this, Whenever a nation's laws are no longer reflecting of the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against Him and will inevitably bear the consequences. And if you're familiar with this particular clip, you will know that Congressman Stubbe was met with a rejoinder by a well-known liberal colleague, let's say it that way, who said this, What any religious tradition describes as God's will is of no concern to this Congress. In other words, we don't care about the exclusive claims of Christ and Christianity. And that's the day we live in, right? Uh, to be quite frank with you, I, I don't really care <laughs> much about Congress. I mean, I do. I think we should put the best people in, but Congress is a reflection of America. They represent Americans. And this is exactly where we find ourselves today Surrounded by people who do not want to be told that there's only one way, that there's only one truth. Uh, you see this, don't you? In conversations maybe you've had or in social media. Well, that's your truth. This is my truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. As if truth is just this thing that we can just kind of shape and form like a piece of clay into whatever we want it to be. You recognize the words of our Lord Jesus from John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a very exclusive statement, isn't it? And then sometime later, we have the Apostle Peter preaching in Acts 4, 12, where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Folks, you and I need a Savior. We need redemption. We need redemption from hell and this world and the devil and ourselves, our sin. Who can do it? Who can redeem us? <laughs> Who is the one who can redeem us? Who is qualified? Who is able? Who is willing? Well, there's only one. And that is our blessed Lord Jesus. And as we return today to the book of Ruth, we see that beautifully here in our story. I want to begin by calling your attention to... Uh, Something that I see in our text, we'll start off with this point, and that is the recognition of the relentless Redeemer. The relentless Redeemer. 
And here I add that this word relentless is defined as someone or something that will not be stopped, unwavering, unfaltering, resolute, determined. Well, this would be how we would describe the Redeemer that is presented here in our text. But before we jump in, I want to do a quick review since it's been a few weeks since we've been here in the book of Ruth. If you think back with me, you'll recall in chapter 3 that Naomi had a desire for Ruth. This particular desire was for rest, uh, wholeness, completeness. And we remember that Ruth had been gleaning in the fields and Naomi was thinking ahead, well, is this it? Is this going to be her life? Just gleaning in the fields? So she has a plan which she shares with Ruth, and Ruth carries this plan out to the T. Of course, this is all expressed toward the man named Boaz. And Boaz is excited to hear that Ruth is longing to be with him, that, that, that she expresses her desire for him. And there's a little bit of a problem, though. Boaz expresses it this way in Ruth 3.13, Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And so what we find out in that statement there from Boaz is that there's someone else who really, uh, in our vernacular, we might say, there's, there's someone who has first dibs. There's someone ahead of me. And so Ruth returned to Naomi and reported this. And the curtain closes on chapter 3, or what we might say Act 3, and begins here in chapter 4, or Act 4. And I, I say it that way because I want us to notice first about this relentless Redeemer, is that He must be the focus he must be the focus. The, the opening scene here is quite different in chapter 4 than from chapter 3. We're no longer out in the field. It's no longer uh, under the, the darkness of night, but it's daytime. And no longer is it a just two people in kind of a hush-hush scene. If you remember back in the last chapter when all that was going on, Boaz had said, Now don't let it be known that there was a woman here. Now this is quite different here in chapter 4. Everything's out in the open. Lots of people are, are aware of what's going on. No more secrets. It's another meeting, yes, but it's a very public one, one the entire community was probably aware of. If you look down at verse 9, we get ahead of ourselves just a bit, but you'll see there, it says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people. So what's happening here in chapter 4 is public being broadcast for everyone. Everyone is aware. And yet as it's as if the camera is focused only on one man, and of course that is Boaz. Now this is done in a technical way in the text. Let me explain what I mean. Usually what you have in Hebrew, and you have this in many languages, is, is the way they construct their sentences. You have verb first and then subject. I know this was the way in, in German. Uh, uh, Stacy and I lived in Germany, and we learned a little bit of German. And so you have the verb and the subject. And so if I were to say something about myself, I would say, uh, 
you know, walked to the car, did Randy. Sounds weird to us because English did not adopt this convention of language. Many languages do. And typically that's what you have in Hebrew. You have the verb, uh, which emphasizes the action, and then the person. But here the writer has reversed it. And he's put the subject first. And I think he's done this intentionally. Again, it's unusual. If you're reading it, if you're familiar with Hebrew and you're reading it, you're going to go, oh, well, that's strange. Why does he do that? Well, I think he does it to call our attention to Boaz. I think this is the writer's way of saying, watch Boaz closely. Focus on him. Which prompts me, in light of this subject of Redeemer, to ask you, where is your focus today? Is your focus on your Redeemer? Or is it on yourself or on someone else who you think can redeem you? Remember the exclusive claims of Jesus. I was reminded in Hebrews 12, 1, where it speaks of running the race that is before us. And how do we run that? In verse 2, it tells us, looking to Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. When you run a race, you may not think like this, but as we're running this race, we're focused on a person, our Redeemer, our Lord Jesus. And so the camera is on Boaz. He is the focus. And then second, what I want you to notice about Boaz is that he is engaged. And when I say engaged, I don't mean as in to be married, but rather that he is active that he is enthusiastically busy, that he's doing that which he has committed himself to. In fact, he has made a vow, if you remember from chapter 3. So Boaz is the focus. And then in the text we notice all the actions that are centered on him. It says that Boaz went up. Boaz sat down. Boaz calls to the other redeemer. Boaz gathers the ten elders. Boaz then explains what's going on and gives out the information. Boaz is a busy man right now, isn't he? He's engaged. He's active. Now, this scene that takes place here at the opening of chapter 4 is at the gate of the city of Bethlehem. It would have probably been bustling this morning with people most likely going out. And as I read it, I'm thinking that after waking up, you remember Boaz had been out in the field, out at the threshing floor. He comes in, and I don't even think he went home. I think he stopped right there. He says, I've got something that I've got to take care of. And it says that he came to the gate and sat down. And, and when it tells us this, what we should recognize is that Boaz is calling court into session. This is the official calling of uh, like a business meeting, a, a court session. Now, it's not a judicial procedure. It's an administrative one. And what's happening here is that Boaz is going to present the facts and all the information. There are two parties here who are involved primarily, and then there are these ten elders who are going to serve as witnesses. All of this 
is orchestrated by Boaz. He's in control here. He's engaged, all right? He's taken the reins and he is resolute. And the focus is on him and all the actions involve him. He's made a commitment to this young lady. And he's told her that he is going to take care of this this very day. According to the vow that he had made with her and according to his reputation, we know this because if you remember the, the closing words of Act 3 were those of Naomi, the man will not rest but will settle the matter today. I was reminded as I considered the, the resolute Redeemer here in Boaz and his commitment him being engaged, I thought of the passion of the Lord Jesus as we approach Easter. We, we think of this. And passion there means the, the giving over of Jesus to himself, surrendering, humbling himself. But let us not forget our Lord's active obedience. He wasn't just passive, he was active. The verse that comes to mind is, of Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to Jerusalem and he would not be deterred. Nothing would stop him. Knowing what awaited him there, his, his crucifixion and death, his, his blood being poured out, that blood that purchased our redemption. And so we see here, an active and engaged Redeemer. And this points to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is even now at the Father's side, as we saw last week from Hebrews, making intercession for us. There's one more point that I want to make about Boaz here, the Redeemer, and I want us to see, as with these other things that we've seen, I want us to see His humility balanced with His activity his resolve, his relentless pursuit of Ruth, we also must recognize his humility. Uh, what do I mean? Well, remember, Boaz can't make this happen. He does not have first right of redemption. So what does he do? Well, we've already reflected on how Boaz is a faithful man. Who, who knows God's law, he follows God's law, and we've all also recognized him trusting in the sovereignty of God. We see here in our passage that, that Boaz is very familiar with God's law, such as Leviticus 25 and 25 and, and the following verses which explain how land is to be redeemed by the nearest redeemer. And then there's Numbers 27, which explains how to determine the nearest kinsman. And then there's a passage in Deuteronomy 25, which describes leveret marriage, or that is, if a man dies without offspring, how, how is it that we can continue that line? And well, this is explained, and Boaz knows all of this. But what Boaz doesn't know, we don't have any hint in the text, is how this particular situation is going to work out. And so what does he do? Well, he simply presents the facts. 
He trusts God's law, God's word, and he humbles himself to whatever the results may be. And what we see here is a man who does not manipulate. He doesn't work behind the scenes. Look, we don't even have any evidence that the, that the near kinsman redeemer even knew about this. Could have been a backdoor deal done. He would have been none the wiser. Boaz is a man of means. He, he could have done this. He could have bribed somebody. Remember the setting of the book of Ruth. Do you remember? It's a period of apostasy and lawlessness and idol worship. And so all around uh, this city of Bethlehem, that's what you have going on. What Boaz is doing here is, a, is an open public hearing. And Boaz might even think, you know what? I, I deserve this. She came to me. She didn't go to the other guy. She came to me. I'm going to make this happen. But as involved as he is, as much as we focus on him and see all his activity and, and how engaged he is, ultimately Boaz is not going to make this happen. He can't. This decision is going to be made by someone else. And what I want us to see here is that we primarily see in Boaz one who points us to our Redeemer, but we also see secondarily in Boaz and in Ruth and in, in Naomi, we see in them examples of the way that we are to carry ourselves. And so we see one here who simply trusts in the Lord. Boaz is a Redeemer who himself has been redeemed. So he is trusting that the God who always executes judge justice as, as he knows from the law, that the God, his God is going to do the right thing. And I think this is a great reminder for us. Amen. We don't need to manipulate situations. We don't need to try to work behind the scenes and do backdoor deals. We just need to present the truth, the facts. That's what Boaz does. And trust in God's word and rely on God's sovereignty. Now, whereas Boaz presents to us a picture of our relentless Redeemer, where our focus is the one who is engaged and yet humble, there is another Redeemer presented in the text. And actually, I'm going to call him a non-Redeemer. The non-Redeemer, I can't help but see a contrast here between Boaz and this other Redeemer, this non-Redeemer. So let's consider this contrast. And the first thing that we notice about this other Redeemer here from verse 1 is that he is unknown. He's unknown. Now you would think that a character in the story who is as important as this person is, who is potentially the one who is going to end up with Ruth and the land and so on and so forth, you would think that we would know who this person is. You would think that the story would present him by name. We never know his name. <laughs> 
lost in obscurity. It's actually more obscure than is interpreted here by the ESV. Boaz addresses the man and says, turn aside, friend. Now, the first part of that, turn aside, is actually some legal jargon. This guy is on his way out to his field or his threshing floor, whatever it is that he may, may be doing. And Boaz gets his attention and says, hold on, before you go, we've got uh, some business to take care of. We've got a legal matter that has to be uh, uh, resolved and, and it involves you. So stop. Sit down here with me. But what the ESV has translated as friend is somewhat misleading because not only is the person probably not a friend of Boaz's, He's an obscure person, and I even wonder if he might be someone of questionable character. I think you'll see why here as we continue on. The, the King James has translated this this way, Ho! Such an one. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, the, the word here for friend in the ESV is actually too rhyming Hebrew words uh, that, that look like a literary device. Uh, they are used only two other times, 1 Samuel 21, verse 2, uh, but not for a man but a place, and it's translated such and such. Uh, the same as in 2 Kings 6, 8, such and such. And so one scholar in his commentary has translated this, uh, turn aside, Mr. So-and-so. Um, but of course, my favorite commentary on Ruth, uh, I've mentioned to you many times, Dr. Daniel Block, he translates it this way. Hey, you, turn aside. Hey, you, almost like, you know, you've probably done that if you can't remember somebody's name or, or maybe you don't want to call them by their name. Hey, you, that's, that's really what we have happening here. Now, Boaz, I think, probably knew his name. If you go back to chapter 3 when Ruth uh, comes and, and lays out the plan and is executing the plan, Boaz recognizes what's happening and he says, this is great, but there's somebody closer than me. And Boaz is presented here as someone who's very knowledgeable. He's very aware of the situation. He knows what's going on. But yet, he doesn't mention this person by name. What's the point? Well, I can't help but think that what we have here is a contrast to Boaz, who is a man of renown and, and greatness and faithfulness. Remember, I, I did some studying on Boaz from some earlier words used to describe him, and I think Boaz was probably a military hero think he's well known. He has a great reputation here in the town of Bethlehem. But there's a contrast between that and this other guy. I don't even know what to call him. He doesn't have a name. You. Hey, you. So and so. And we notice here in our text that not only was he unknown, but that he was also uninformed. Uninformed. Think about this, folks. Here's the potential redeemer, first in line, first dibs. This is a big deal, okay? This is a court proceeding taking place. And 
so-and-so here is completely in the dark. <laughs> it's almost as if he's like, he doesn't know about any of this. So Boaz, beginning in verse 3, he, he lays out the facts of the case. He, he tells him of Naomi and, and the stay down in Moab, and the parcel of land and the deceased relative. And the one who is a nearer kinsman than Boaz, um, well, wouldn't we expect him to know all of this? He's closer. This could potentially affect him a whole lot more than Boaz. I think this tells us a lot about Boaz, because Boaz is so aware and so involved he knows what's happening in the community. And he knows that some of his close relatives who, who had gone away had come back. And he knows the story. But this other person, he's unaware of what's going on. And I can't help but wonder why. Why does he not know? How can he not know? I mean, he's nearer only in a legal sense, though, right? Doesn't seem to be concerned. What kind of person is this? Can't help but wonder, can you? I mean, this is something he should have known. This is going to potentially involve him a lot. And yet he's in the dark. He occupies a unique place, right? He's first in line. He needs to be ready. Boaz states in verse 4, Tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. This is up to you. This is all on you. Everything is, hinges on you. And here in the story we have a moment really of a sadness <laughs> and dejection. Probably not so much for us because we know how it ends. But if you don't know the ending, this is terrible. Okay? Because here, this character in the story utters these fateful words, I will redeem it. Now, if you are reading a good book or watching a good movie, you've all been at that point where you know that the thing that happens that you don't want happen, it happens, and you go, oh, no. I didn't want that to happen. Not to, not to him. He's a bad guy. No. This isn't happening, is it? And I can't help but wonder if... Ruth and Naomi had been there. What would their expressions have been to hear him say that? I'll do it. Oh, no. But the story presses on. It's not over. So Boaz, who is uh, resolute, maybe even stoic as I picture him, he comes back with more information. Was this part of his strategy? I don't know. He's a smart guy. But this nearer, unkin, uh, nearer kinsman, as we see, who is unknown and unwilling, we, we also see here that he is indeed unwilling. 
uninformed and unwilling. Boaz continues in verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Now, this last bit of information that he gives uh, sinks the deal. And suddenly, the guy with first dib says, Oh, well then, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because there's just so much debate uh, in uh, the, the commentaries and among the scholars about why exactly he refused this deal. I don't know that we can nail it down and say for sure why. And I don't know that we need to. The point here is that there is one man who has an obligation. That's what this is. And he does not fulfill his obligation. But there's another man here, a man of great renown, who is relentless and decisive and engaged and active and, and caring and who is willing to take whatever the risk is, because there seems to be implied here some sort of risk. And whatever it is, Boaz has said, I, I don't care. I'll take it. This man says, I, I, I uh, may impair my own in inheritance. Well, I can't help but think, well, maybe there was some way that Boaz could have impaired his, but he said, you know what, that's okay. The emphasis is on the non-redeemer's refusal. Because he says this twice. Did you see that in the text? The redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. In case you didn't hear me the first time, I cannot. I'm not doing this. And here's my takeaway. I'm back to my original question. Who can redeem you? There's only one. There's only one who is qualified, able, and willing. This non-redeemer is unwilling. Boaz was not the only one qualified. In fact, there was someone more qualified, right? I don't know that Boaz was the only one who was able. I can't help but think that what we learn of Ruth's reputation, there may have been others who would have taken this deal as well. There was only one who was qualified, able, and also willing. Only one. The relentless redeemer. The one with great resolve. Nothing would stop him. And so we come back to our main point. There's only one Redeemer, brothers and sisters. There's only one. And I don't know who else you may be looking to today, your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your parents or your children or your job or your hobby or your money or some other religion, Islam. Hinduism, 
for the biggest religion in America, secular humanism. When anyone or anything reaches out to you and presents itself to you as a redeemer, you better reject it. It's a fraud. It's a charlatan. It's going to fail. And ultimately, it's going to deny you. Because there's only one who will come and embrace you and say, yes, this is what I want. This is what I am pursuing. And nothing will stop me. Only one. There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom. The redemption price. His precious blood. That's who Jesus is. Isaiah, the prophet, takes up this motif that we have here in the book of Ruth with this, this husband and redeemer. And he says this in Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. You need a Redeemer. You need redemption. You need protection, provision, safety, security, salvation, friendship and companionship, and you're only ultimately going to find that in one person. And it's Jesus. Well, we have a relentless redeemer, a non-redeemer, and I want to make one final point. I've mentioned this, I've hinted to this before here in this book, but I want to now conclude this morning with this point. I want us to see here not merely redemption, but complete redemption. Complete redemption. What do I mean? Well, I want us to notice here all that is involved in this legal proceeding here in the gates of the city of Bethlehem. What is being redeemed? What all is being redeemed? Well, first of all, we have the land. And again, we... Look to Boaz's words. Naomi has come back from the country of Moab and is selling the parcel of land. And so first we have this parcel of land. Uh, if you think back to the story, you remember that when the people came into Canaan, there was a conquest and all the land was divvied up. First by tribe, then by clans, and then by families. And the intent was for those families to always have that land. It would stay with that family. This was God keeping his promise to Abraham. To your descendants, I'm going to give this land. Now, extenuating circumstances, impoverished families could still find a way to provide for themselves by temporary selling their land. But what that meant was that there was another wonderful provision called the year of Jubilee. And what happened in the year of Jubilee? The land was restored back to its original family. But here in the case of the death of the owner and his sons, the right of redemption is being presented as going to the nearest of kin. And this is based on Numbers 27, 9 through 11. Now that's important. All right. Land is important. But 
I think there's something probably more important, at least in our interest as we read the story. And who is that? Well, it's Ruth. What about Ruth? Boaz presents the parcel of land. He says, you're the nearest of kin. And the man says, I'll redeem it. But when he presents Ruth, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Well, here he says, I cannot redeem it. <laughs> and so as important as the land is, we also recognize here that there is a young lady, a widow, who is in need. Her mother-in-law has recognized this. So we're reading the story and probably we don't care so much about the land. As important as that is, we do care about it, but we care about Ruth more, right? Because we want to see a happy ending here in this story. What about Ruth? Naomi presents the plan in the last chapter, chapter 3, to Ruth. And if you remember there, Naomi said nothing about the land. It's almost as if that's, that's secondary to me. I, I'm, I'm concerned about you. What a wonderful statement. I'm concerned about my foreigner daughter-in-law. We've both lost our husbands. I tried to get her to stay in her country. She wouldn't. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? This probably 25-ish or so widow. No real future except to glean in the fields, gather grain, provide for her and her mother-in-law who's getting older. And that's her life. And Naomi says, no, there's got to be something better. And so her plan is unfolded beautifully. And now we see it happening, right? Because Ruth is redeemed. And not only is Ruth redeemed, but we also see that Naomi is as well. I'm not going to say a whole lot about that. Until later. <laughs> so, this is perfect, right? Everything's working out great. The land is redeemed. Ruth and Naomi will be redeemed. And we think, okay, everything's working out great. But what I need for you to see here is that this is not the most important part of this redemptive act here. There's something more important, believe it or not, than the land and Ruth. So listen closely. Whenever you have redemption, you have a picture of resurrection. Whenever you have redemption, you have a picture of resurrection. Along with the land and Ruth, we have the redemption of, thirdly, the dead. Listen again to Boaz's words closely from verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, that little phrase, in order to, is a purpose clause. In other words, Boaz is telling us here at this point, this is why we're having this proceeding. 
Why did I stop you and pull you over here and gather these ten elders and we're all sitting here and the town is gathered around in this public hearing, this court case. Everybody knows what's going on. Why am I doing this? Primarily to perpetuate the name of the dead. Now, let's stop here just for a second and focus on what is unfortunately a poor translation in the ESV. And this word perpetuate sounds good. It's a big word, but what does it mean? Well, I prefer a more literal translation, believe it or not, in, in the King James and others. What is put here for perpetuate is to raise, to raise the name of the dead. Now, Elimelech, his name has not been mentioned since chapter 2, verse 3. Probably forgotten by most of us. Our focus has been on Boaz and Ruth and gleaning in the field and all the gifts he gives her and then the plan and now this case. And what about Elimelech? He, he's dead and gone and forgotten, right? No, he's not. <laughs> It cannot be forgotten because what is taking place here is that through this redemption, Elimelech's name will live on. This is a resurrection story. His family will continue. Boaz will fulfill his obligation to his dead family member, and he's going to raise up children. And is this, if these are Elimelech's children, his name will carry on. And this is the primary point here of this case. Redemption always means resurrection. Always. I want to close with this verse this morning. Psalm 103 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. And the pit there is a picture of death and the grave. I don't care how good your life is right now. If you have not rede been redeemed by Jesus, you're in the pit. And there's only one way out. There's only one way to be redeemed out of that pit. And it's through the precious blood of our Lord Jesus. If you know Him today, you've been redeemed. And the Bible says to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen? And if you don't know Him... You need to come to Him. Trust Him. He'll redeem you. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we're thankful for Your precious Word. What a great encouragement it is to us. How it strengthens our hearts. We're so thankful for the Gospel presented here to us. And this a favorite Old Testament story of many. We thank you that here we can open the pages and see our Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. And we cling to the hope of the gospel today. We thank you for how you instruct us and teach us to trust you and rest in you. We pray that you would strengthen your church today. 
We pray that you would bless us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.